0: The St. Charles County Veterans Museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. The museum would not exist without the donations of our generous community. Your donations ensure the museum continues to share and preserve the stories of our veterans. Would you like to be part of something special? To donate, visit sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate. This podcast is sponsored by the Renee S. Real Estate Agency, located here in O'Fallon, Missouri. She is licensed in Missouri and Illinois and focuses on your personal and commercial insurance needs. Her office is located at 2764 Highway K, O'Fallon, Missouri 63368. She can be reached at 636-379-9556 or by email at reneeessary at allstate.com, R-E-N-E-E-E-S-S-A-R-Y at allstate.com. If you are shopping for insurance and want an active agent that will educate and advise you on the coverage you need, reach out to her. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. The primary purpose of the Dog Tag Podcast is to educate. The views, information, or opinions expressed on the Dog Tag Podcast are solely the views of the individuals or guests involved and by no means represent absolute facts. The Dog Tag does not accept responsibility for their views or comments. Welcome to the Dog Tag Podcast at the St. Charles County Veterans Museum with your host Jason Galvin and Jim Higgins. Today in studio we have Matthew Sims, United States Army. Jim, will you go ahead and kick us off?
1: Thank you, Jason, and welcome, Matt. It's great to always have you in here. It's um, it's it's just amazing some of the stories you have. Uh, one of the things, just from a personal perspective, that intrigues me and and just gets me excited, Matt was a combat medic, and as a combat medic, our corpsman, you know, they're taught to run toward the danger, and when you read stories from, you know, the the other troops that were with combat medics, testimonials, letter of thanks. There's a kind of devotion there that you cannot see that in any other place. And uh, your story that we have in the museum here is amazing because some of the things that people wrote about you after the fact, after your service. But again, that devotion, you just don't see it in civilian life. And uh, you uh, early on... I think when you went into the Army, you decided that you were you wanted to do an MOS that had you help save lives. Can you kind of explain what your motive was to go in there and become a combat medic?
2: Sure, uh, yeah, and thanks for having me today, guys. It's always a pleasure to be here at the museum, and thank you all for doing what you do for our, our local veterans here. Um, so, you know, my uh, initial motivation to go in uh, as a medic is, was, you know, I, I wanted to – I wanted to serve, first of all, but I, I wanted to 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 be able to go out, and while everybody else was taking a life in war, um, I wanted to be the one to save lives instead of take them. But as a combat medic, you still have to put in situations where you may have to take a life, but uh, your main goal is to save the lives of your fellow brothers and sisters in arms, uh, and then actually, even in uh, oftentimes, save the life of the enemy you're fighting. Um a life uh, is a life, and if the enemy is no longer a threat um, at the time, you risk your life to save their life as well.
1: I think uh, you bring up a good point there. You know, I mean, it, it's it's kind of like uh, the the doctors, uh, what what their responsibilities are. But you said something that really I thought was really important, and and really made me stop and think that you're it's a little bit of an ethical dilemma. For, you said i think believe in in the story first they train you to kill then you, they train you to heal and that that just seems I, I it's intense it's it's just hard to kind of fathom that statement but that's exactly what you did
2: yes that, that's true so uh you know everyone comes into the army or to the military initially and you go to a, some type of basic training where they Take you from being a, a civilian on the street and, and they literally train you to be a killer that's what you are training to do when you go to basic training um, you, Of course you learn the basics of being a soldier how to survive how to navigate but really you're learning how to take the life of another human being uh, and to survive in war um, so yeah they, they train you uh, initially to take a life, but then you change gears if you're going to be a medic and 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 they focus on how to save and preserve life uh, as a combat medic. So, and then even as a combat medic, they hand you a weapon uh when you go to combat. And that weapon technically is supposed to be uh to defend your life and to defend the life of your patients. It's not to be an offensive weapon, but uh yeah, it's used to de- to defend your life and the life of the people you're trying to save.
1: The other kind of devotion that we see, we we read oftentimes the thank you from, from guys that have served with you. You've saved lives. But the other kind of devotion we see is you learn early on that the, the quickness to which they get medical attention is, is paramount to these guys recovering, surviving. And many of you guys, and I, I'm sure in your case you did, you realize that if you're at that point where he's wounded, it gives you the best opportunity to save a life. Of course, the dilemma is you're in immediate danger right there because you're rushing to his aid when he falls, and that just seems so. It's brave, and I think you said it one time that you wanted to be at the point where they were they were wounded in yeah. order to save lives.
2: That's correct. Uh, and over the over the wars uh, that the United States has been in, we've learned that the best way to save lives is to treat the wound immediately at the point of injury if possible. Um, So you can stop bleeding, uh, hydrate, and get that patient back to a surgeon as quickly as possible to save their life. So, yeah, as a combat medic, you are in the field, in the fight with your men and women, uh, and treating them at that point of actual injury is important. And and a lot of times, you know, you do have to put yourself in harm's way um, to save their life. But, you know, as a combat medic, um, you learn, and you train, you live with these men and women for years a lot of times before you're put into a situation like that. So um, you know that they have your back, right, and, and they know that I have their back as a combat medic. So um, as, a, as a really good, respected combat medic, you have the protection of your team because they know that you are the one that is going to save them on the battlefield if they're wounded. So they, they treat you uh, and they protect you like you're one of their brothers or, or sisters or, or child or mother or father because they know you're going to risk your
1: life to save theirs, and they would do the same thing for me. And, again, that kind of devotion you see to each other in the service, I don't think there's any parallel in, in the civilian world. It, it's, you guys are truly dedicated to each other.
2: That's correct. You, uh, you, you definitely don't see that uh, in the civilian world in very many places where um, you have so many different walks of life, different races, different religions, different backgrounds, people from different countries coming together in to, uh, one common goal, uh, and we don't look at each other in a, in a different way. You're a soldier, you're a brother, you're a sister, we don't, I, don't, I don't care what your background is, what color your skin is. I don't care What you, who you pray to. We don't care about that. It's not about that. We all bleed red in the end of the day when we're injured. So um, you don't see that really anywhere else in the world in the civilian side of the house, for sure.
1: And one thing that's interesting about it is you develop that closeness, and we hear many times that then one day you don't put on the uniform and you're away from your family, and that's tough too. It is.
2: So, yeah, um, you know, um, being away from the family, uh, the, the folks that you serve with are actually become your family while you're deployed. And then, you know, when you decide eventually to, to separate from the military because we all get out, we can't serve forever. You know, I had a, a, a first sergeant of mine tell me there's, you know, a few ways that you get out. Everybody gets out, though. So either you, you get out and make a decision, you retire out, um, or – you die out that's it that's the only way's out um so you know um after taking the uniform off um it can be difficult for some people to let go of that camaraderie and brotherhood um but uh, the best way to do it is, is find a way to give back in your in the veteran community at a museum like like this or or volunteer at the USO or or anything you can still have that brother and sisterhood um even if you take the uniform off luckily I took the uniform off about 3 years ago but I'm working for the United States Army in a a healthcare capacity so I get to see soldiers every single day and I I get to work with the same caliber of people uh, except I just don't wear a, a a military uniform anymore I I traded my uniform in for a suit and tie a little bit of big, bigger paycheck and but I still get to to serve every day with those with those same soldiers
1: the uh, the other portion of the, the job that, you know, I've, I've heard you talk about before that's kind of, I don't think people quite understand it, but when you're serving as a combat medic, of course there's always a fear that the combat medic goes down and then you would need to be treated by the guys around you. So a big part of what you did was training the troops to take care of each other.
2: Uh, that's correct. So, um, you know, as, as a combat medic, when you um, are prepping to go on a deployment, um, one of the main missions is to train your fellow non-medical soldiers on how to treat wounds, right? And we, we, in the military, in the army, at least we call them combat lifesavers. And they're required to go through a course prior to deployment. And it's usually taught by your combat medic, the combat medic that you are going to serve with. Um, So you teach them how to, to basically do generalized first aid. They're They're not quite as savvy as a combat medic, but you teach them the basics, how to put on a tourniquet, you know, how to start an IV, how to bandage wounds, you know, how to identify head injuries, things like that. Um, Because you know that as a combat medic, you are probably going to get injured too possibly. And you're going to need someone to, to, to step up and save your life. And it it happened to me uh, three times, you know, I was wounded three times uh, out with my guys. And then the people that treated me were the young soldiers uh, that I had trained Uh, to save lives so without them you know I I wouldn't I wouldn't be here today Um, so yeah it's it's a great thing to take your knowledge as a combat medic and and train them and you know I was in an artillery unit um, when this happened in an armor unit um, and they cross-trained me on how to fight with their weapons systems uh, and how to load a round into an artillery piece and fire it if I needed to so if one of them was to go down I could step up and do their job. So that's what you do in the military. As a combat medic, it's great because uh, you get to experience all the different kind of units in the Army. You know, as an artilleryman or an infantryman, you typically are doing your infantry job and you stay in an infantry unit. But as a combat medic, for 23 years, I've been in pretty much every kind of unit there was in the in the military. So I've got to experience military police, artillery, uh, cavalry, infantry, engineers, and you get to cross train with those people and become a better soldier. So I could I know a little bit about how to do everything in the military. Best job in the military is being a medic in my opinion.
1: <laughs> so you went in in what year?
2: Uh, I joined 1997 right out of high school. I Literally understand. I had my 18th birthday in basic training. So I could technically not even sign up to go into the army myself. My parents had to to sign the waiver to allow me to join. Uh before I was even 18 years old. So I turned 18 with a drill sergeant on my backside. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so you're, you're in, when I hear a year, I kind of think back what was going on in the world that was prior to 9-11. Uh, and of course, 9-11 changed everything. So where were you at when you heard about 9-11?
2: So I was stationed in Germany, uh, in Bamberg, Germany, uh, when I heard about 9-11. Uh, I actually had the day off, uh, and my wife and I were out shopping for a new TV at the at the base exchange, um, in the at the base on German in Germany U.S. base, and that's how we found out about nine eleven. Is we were shopping for a TV, and all the TVs that were on the display had the plane that had crashed into the World Trade Center, uh, and, and that was the very first plane. That was the first plane that crashed, in. so we didn't think anything too much about it yet. We didn't even know that it was a, a commercial jet. We thought it was a small plane, so we didn't think much about it, and we left and went to. Uh, to get something to eat and we heard on the radio that a plane had also crashed into the second tower and then one had crashed into the pentagon and at that point i knew something was wrong Uh, and that's when the phone started ringing and and we were recalled back to the installation and and we're locked down on the installation for a couple of weeks couldn't even leave we were locked down so that's how i found out about it was shopping for a tv
1: (laughs) i've heard many many soldiers say that once that happened they knew they were Going to be deployed sooner or later to Iraq, Afghanistan, that area. Did you feel the same?
2: Yeah, we knew, uh, especially being stationed in Germany. Uh, you know, sometimes the people stationed in Europe are closer to the Middle East, and, and we knew eventually that we were going to deploy, and probably sooner than later. Um, we knew that uh, a terrorist attack like that had never happened before, so it was an unprecedented
1: time, uh, and we knew we
2: were going to go somewhere for sure.
1: And then the training kind of became very real probably for you guys at that point. You know, we were peacetime, and all of a sudden the switch flipped, and now you're training knowing very well you're going to be deployed sooner or later.
2: That's correct, and and it's different training because, you know, technically the, the last conflict we're in prior to that was Desert Storm, which was generally in the same area of the world, but it was a little bit different, mostly aerial combat. Um, but we knew that if we were going to go on this time, there was going to be boots on the ground, a lot more boots on the ground. So um, we have training. Um, we started training pretty much immediately, but we didn't really know exactly what to what to train for because we didn't deal with urban warfare in a long, long time prior to the conflict. Well, now we're experts at urban warfare, but uh, we were training for something we didn't know what we are actually going to step into.
1: So... You finally deployed to Iraq, I believe, in two thousand five. Correct, That's correct. Early in two thousand five, and um, you mentioned it. You you had the have the distinction of having earned three Purple Hearts. You were over there. How long were you over there before you uh, received your so, first wounded?
2: Uh the first wound. I was over. I was been in country for about three months. Three months, um, and I was uh, wounded uh, by uh, an IED blast. So uh, and that collapsed my collapsed my right lung. Uh, I was in a convoy uh, in my medical vehicle in between two M1 tanks. You think when you're out right on a patrol with two M1 Abrams tanks that you're pretty safe, but when you're in a one inch aluminum um, vehicle, medical vehicle with a big red cross on the side of it, of course they're not going to detonate the IED. On the uh, M1 tanks that are totally armored, they're gonna they're gonna try to blow up a uh, medical vehicle, which is exactly what they did, uh, and it ruptured my right ear drum and collapsed my right lung.
1: We uh, we have on display, thanks to Matt, his uh, uniform that he was wearing when the ambulance hit that IED, along with a vial of shrapnel there. So you, um, I remember the story that you kind of begged your commander you didn't want to go home. You, you probably. They were they were willing to probably send you home to recover, but you wanted to stay in country and complete your deployment.
2: That's yeah, true. After the first uh, after the first injury, um, you know, I was uh, treated on site by the combat lifesaver. They did a needle decompression because my lung was collapsed, and went to the blood hospital. And uh, yeah, I was I was slated to go to Langestuhl uh, Hospital in Germany, and then from there back to Walter Reed, and and probably not come back to Iraq. But, well, you know, as bad as a collapsed lung sounds, technically it's not really that bad of an injury if it's treated properly, quickly, and which it was. Um, so when they came to visit me in the hospital, I asked my commander, my company commander, if I could stay. And he's like, well, I'm, I'm just a captain. And uh, uh sure, but we'll, we'll ask the battalion commander, or the lieutenant colonel. And the battalion commander said, well, I'm just a lieutenant colonel. And uh, so I asked the brigade commander, and the brigade commander said, hey, we're short on medics. If you want to stay... You're a medic. You know what's going on. You can stay. So it took a 06 colonel to make that decision, but, yeah, they, they allowed me to stay.
1: <laughs> so you were, it took a while to heal from that injury.
2: Yeah, it took a little while. I, I mean, collapsed lungs actually heal a lot quicker than you'd think they would. Um, they put a chest tube in. Uh, I had a chest tube uh, in, coming out of my, out of my uh, right lung for about three weeks, and when they took that out, I was actually back out on patrol within about eight, eight, weeks. eight weeks. Six to eight weeks I was. I was back in the, at the base in about six weeks, but they wouldn't let me go out to the fight for a couple more weeks.
0: What was, the, what was the change in the psychology, if anything, from the time of the wound to going back out in the in-between time of, okay, now I've experienced a wound. You know, my, my soldiers have helped me that were trained, right. cross range And kind of walk us through maybe some psychology of that, what you went through?
2: So, yeah, I mean, of course, it was my first time ever being wounded in any training, really, um, or any combat. So, yeah, you have that fear now. This is real, right? This is combat. Um, and I treated plenty of wounds prior to that of other soldiers, but when it happens to you, you know, it's real. Now now you know when you step outside that gate that, you know, you could die easily. I mean, a collapsed lung could kill you very easily. Um, so, yeah, there's a little bit of fear there now. It's in the back of your head. Do I? I could have went home, right? Should I have went home? But we were losing a lot of people at the time. Um, a lot of people were, a lot of soldiers were being killed. It was right around the election time, and it was a really bad time. Um, so that only crossed my mind a little bit. After that, I was like, you know what? This is what I, this is what I joined to do. If I, if I pass, then that's it. I'm doing what I like, at least I'm doing what I love.
1: So. You're you're back out. At, you know they held you out for a couple of weeks after you came back from the hospital, but now you're back on patrol. Tell us about that that other fateful patrol.
2: So yeah, uh, this one was uh, um, took a was in an M1 tank again. Uh, this time we we decided to leave our medical ambulance um, back at the file. We decided we weren't going to drive those little we call them cracker boxes. We weren't going to drive that anymore with a red cross on it. So we left those back at the base and. Um, so I decided to ride in the gunner's hatch of the tank. Figured it would be the safest place for me. Um, so I'm in there, uh, and we're going down uh, main service route, Tampa. That's what they call it, main route in Iraq. Uh, two or three in the morning, headed back to the FOB um, of, of an after a night of patrolling, uneventful night. Um, and uh, I started to see flashes in the distance. And you know what a flash of a weapon looks like. But it was so far away. And there was so much gunfire in Iraq, sometimes people just shoot in the air. So we didn't think anything – I didn't think anything about it. But I called it over the radio, said, hey, I see flashes, and then that's all I remember. Um, I woke up, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes later um, in the middle of the road, a highway there in Iraq with my team of tankers in a circle around me, protecting me. Um, and uh, I could hear the sound of the helicopter blades um so the evac helicopter was already on its way. So I, I I felt fine. I didn't I didn't have any wounds that were bleeding. Um, I didn't really have any pain whatsoever. Um, but I knew that I had take. They told me, hey, I tried to get up, and I no doc, you need to lay down. You took a bullet to the head, to the helmet. You, you really need to to chill. So I took a bullet to the to the literally to the front of the helmet, um, literally an inch above my right between my eyes. So the helmet deflected the bullet. Um, and I had no pain. So I, the helicopter took me to the blood hospital again for my second round of, and I didn't think I was that injured on the flight there. No pain, anything. I didn't have any issues. Just a little foggy feeling in my head from taking a gunshot wound to the helmet. Um, but once I, the adrenaline wore off and they landed the helicopter and I jumped off the helicopter to, to walk towards the team of people that thought they were, going to treat a soldier with a head wound. That's what they thought. And they, all they heard was someone was coming with a been shot in the head. So they had the whole trauma team there. Uh, I jumped off, and I fell immediately. So I had a fractured femur as well from when I fell into the turret of the tank. And after that adrenaline wore off, uh, that, that broken femur really hit me. I felt a and they brought me in and told me that I had a fractured uh, femur and that I had a really, really bad concussion. It was pretty much like getting hit in the head by a sledgehammer. Well, they didn't find the broken neck uh, until about two weeks later. So I was having neck pain, and then they said, well, that's normal. You got shot in the head, right? It's normal to have neck pain. But finally they did an uh, a MRI and CT scan and found out that I had a fractured vertebrae in my neck as well. So I had a broken neck and a fractured femur um, from that gunshot wound to the head.
1: So the uh, I'm thinking now you you've been wounded a second time, and – I'm not sure if you were married then, but you got some folks at home that are probably getting a little nervous about you being deployed, and and you're calling them pretty quickly, notifying them that you've been uh, injured again.
2: Actually, um, no. No, I I didn't call and tell my wife um, about the injury, the first injury. Um, The Army called her and let her know that I was injured, right? Um, They didn't tell her the extent of my first injury. They just call and say, by the way, your spouse has been injured. Uh, he's stable in the hospital. So I called her after the first injury and said, Yeah, it was just a minor, some minor, you know, not a big deal. It's a little scratch. I didn't tell her about a collapsed lung. Um, and she got the call again after the broken neck from the Army saying he's been injured, but he's fine. Um, he's just stable. So when I finally got the her once again, yeah, it's not a big deal. This is an explosion and I didn't have any serious issues. So she didn't know the extent of my. Injuries. She knew that I would have been injured, but she just thought it was something
1: minor. So she probably wasn't in on the discussion when you once again begged the commander to finish your deployment.
2: No, she didn't even know that I could have came home. She didn't know any of that until I actually came home from deployment on my normal deployment cycle. So, uh, yeah, she didn't know
1: that I was even even having those conversations with the commander. She didn't know that I had the opportunity to come home at all. But, but once again, you pleaded with your commander to say, let me finish my deployment. You were in the hospital for how long this time? It was about uh, nine weeks
2: um, of recovery. After they found out I had a broken neck, they really wanted me to stay in the hospital and let that heal. It was a minor fracture, but it was a minor fracture to the cervical vertebrae 3, which if it severs, it controls your breathing, so you, you pass away. There's no surviving that one. It was fairly stable. And it was as minor as a broken neck could be, um, but yeah, they they decided. I begged the commander, and they decided to let me stay again. So yeah, they said, "Sure, why not? If you think you can stay, we'll let you stay."
0: I wonder how many times they've heard somebody ask to stay after a couple injuries. Were you the? Do you know if there's any stat on that or?
2: I don't know if there's any stat on it, but I can tell you. Um, it's more people than you actually think. Really? Yeah, that actually want to stay. Um, there's a lot of folks that want to go when they're injured, and I completely understand that as well. Um, but There's more people than you think, right? I'm not unique in the fact that most people don't get injured three times in one tour. Um, but people asking to stay in combat after they've been injured, that's not, that's not an uncommon thing for our service members. It's not uncommon at all
0: that's why they're so brave. You know, those are, those guys are our heroes, you know, and they do, they do things most people don't even imagine uh, or dream that would happen. So.
1: Well, again, it's that devotion to their their family. Absolutely. That makes them want to stay and and complete a tour. The, um, so you, you come back from that injury about eight weeks or so then, Mm -hmm. and you get to go out on another patrol.
2: Yes. So, yeah, this time um, uh, we decided maybe going out in vehicles wasn't a good idea um, since they hit us with IEDs uh, quite often in the vehicles. So um, we decided, hey, let's go out. uh, And we did this quite often uh, out in the town um, just to go out and do a presence patrol and talk to the townspeople to see if they could give us any information. So uh, we were out walking around town um, doing our thing. And uh, mortar rounds started, which was not uncommon either. Um, Mortar rounds started to walk in on our position. Um, Typically, it took the Iraqis a while to walk in mortar rounds. They couldn't, they weren't very good at their job. Um, But uh, this time they were actually quick. They walked them in and they were hitting us pretty quickly. So um, um, one of the fellow soldiers that I was on patrol with took shrapnel to the abdomen. Um, So we immediately took them to cover and uh, started treating. abdominal wound Um, but another round came in uh, and exploded probably about four feet from where we were Um, and uh, shrapnel came in and hit me in my left lower leg so it entered the front part of my leg hit the two bones in the lower leg and then kind of ricocheted out the side of my leg kind of blew out the side of my calf so um, you know adrenaline's running I'm treating a, a wound already uh, now mortar rounds are continuing to come in and then, um, small arms fire started to come from the buildings around us. So they were walking mortars in on us and then they were having small arms fire. So we knew, um, that they were not going to come and evacuate us. We had already called in a bird to come in and evacuate us, um, from the area, uh, myself and uh, the other gentleman that was injured. But typically the rule is they're not going to risk a bird, uh, a black hawk, uh, you know, if you're still under enemy fire, which makes perfect sense, right? Um, So they said, well, we're not going to come until you at least suppress the fire or or move out of the location. So we suppressed the fire as good as we could, and we we decided that we were going to take it back to the FOB, which is about three miles. So you got a a person with a pretty bad abdominal wound that we had to carry, uh, and then me with a pretty injured leg, bleeding. um, But we were able to – the combat lifesavers were able to treat me while I was treating – the The soldier with the abdominal wound. I put a tourniquet on my leg, stopped the bleeding, and we were able to walk the three miles back to the base. And the bird came in and took me on my third visit to uh, to Balad Hospital in Iraq. So by the time that I arrived there, um, the uh, crew at the hospital already knew me. So they're <laughs> like, "Yeah, Matt's back." And it wasn't even a last name basis anymore. It's first name. Hey, Matt's back. We got it. We, we saved you a room, right? We we got a room for you. you just go over there and. It's just a leg wound now. That's nothing. Broken neck, collapsed lung, fractured femur. Now you just got a little flesh wound to your leg. I mean, it was worse than that when you looked at it. But to them, it was just a flesh wound. So, yeah, they gave me a room and cleaned out my leg, sewed me up. And, uh, of course, they came and visited me again. Uh, and the commander said, let me guess. You you're gonna, you gonna want to stay, right? I said, yeah, sure. So literally that day, I went home. They sewed me up. And my leg was good to go. And they let me go back to the – they went Let me go back to the base that day with those injuries. So they let me stay um, after my third injury. But uh, the brigade commander at that time said, you know what? We are not going. We got three months left on this deployment. You can stay, but you are not going out on any more combat patrols. He's like, I'm not going to be the one that allowed you to stay here after your third injury. And then you go back out and get killed. And then I have to explain that to your family. So they let me stay in Iraq, but uh, they made me the uh, talk supervisor. So I was as a medic, I was running the tactical operations center for a tank battalion um, and uh, making coffee for the commander and, and, and doing typical things. I still got to do medic stuff because when they came back from patrol uh, or came back and they were injured or ill or you just needed an IV, I still got to do medic stuff. I just didn't, wasn't able to go out into the fight, which was actually at that point pretty much fine with me. We had a shipment of medics come in um, probably about a month before that. So we had plenty of people to go out and take care of soldiers. So I, I'm, I was kind of glad that they forced me to stay because I would have never done it myself. I would have went out. But when, you know, when, you, when you're a young sergeant and you've got a colonel telling you you're not going to go, you know, you, you kind of just listen and say, yes, sir. But I'm glad that he did. Mm-hmm
0: so Matt uh, as a medic did you guys just treat the physical wounds or were there other you know you know the uh, the mental scars and wounds that come with battle did you guys have anything to do with with that piece at all
2: so not directly I'd say more indirectly so as a combat medic technically not trained on any behavioral health or mental health care um, but really a lot of the times it's not about being trained on that it's about just being a compassionate human being and a fellow soldier uh, and, and recognizing the signs and the symptoms when a person's having an issue. Right? You live with these people, and you can tell when someone's different. And a lot of times it wasn't even about the combat they were It was about something was going on at home, back home, right? Kids sick or you know, a child was born, and now you're here in a combat zone. There's a million different things. It was, it was a way to recognize that someone is – having problems, and then just being there to listen to them. And the same thing for me, you know, um, people recognized that, you know, I was having some issues, you know, after we treated significant um, mass casualty of things. You know, as a medic, you're supposed to be the the strong one. You're not supposed to show any emotion. You're supposed to just treat and and not freak out. You're supposed to be calm, um, but you know, when you get back to the base after something like that, you know, you kind of got to walk away from the group. And that's when you can let your emotions out. But, you know, uh, people can see something's wrong. And just being there for each other is really what it's mainly about. So we yeah, have people come back with all different forms of PTSD or just, you know, anxiety and things like that. And, and everybody responds to different differently to different treatments. But
1: I found that the best thing to do is just be their friend
2: and and listen, we
1: hear that oftentimes with veterans that come back as the best therapy is veteran to veteran talk, and you get you become concerned when they're not talking yep. and uh, that's one of the things I think that is a bit of a negative is the veteran organizations that are out there the membership is declining, and that that platform affords the veterans the opportunity to talk to other veterans. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have many veterans that come in here, and and oftentimes if it's a combat vet, we film or interview. Uh, I actually encourage another combat veteran that lives right around the area to come in at the same time and have them meet. And inevitably there's a conversation that I think puts them both at ease and helps. So that, um, you know, and and you're right, I think that what we learn around here is PTSD is – it's hard to diagnose it and uh, it is a very real thing so you're you're serving the rest of your deployment it's probably about October about October of 2005 that's correct and uh, you got a couple events that happened the rest of the year one you were in a firefight the women were given the right to vote late in the year I think it was December of 2005 and you were going to work security on on that security detail for that event but you lost a few men right before that and um, so you're going to work security for that event you guys obviously if you lose a few people you know you're I mean it's it's challenging right now you're gonna protect the the Iraqis there and, and protect the people voting but you've kind of got a chip on your shoulder right about then too but you showed up and you set up and you were on guard duty, security for you know the voting. Tell us what happened then. So yeah,
2: um, we definitely had a chip on our shoulder. Uh, we just lost two people in a firefight a week prior to. So you know, as much as you would think, you know, we we uh, we were vigilant, but we were looking for revenge. To be honest with you, we were looking to find the the the, the guys that. Uh, They killed our brothers, but uh, that day we had to put that aside um, because we were there um, to provide security to a polling station. It was the first time that really anybody got to vote in that country in many, many, many years, and it was the first time in history that women got to have a voice. Um, So our team was picked to do security, and, of course, my job as a medic was just to provide medical support to my troops and, and then provide any medical support to the to their local population that needed it, um, <clears throat> so we just set up and we waited for them to show and uh, the voters, and, and and it was insane how many people turned out. Like I, I, I wish you know Americans would vote and show up to the polling stations like these Iraqis did. Right, it was it was amazing that they showed and women right showed up to vote <clears throat> and everything was going fine. Um, no issues. Um, it, we knew that it was a, a soft target. It was a target for terrorists because they didn't want people to be able to vote. But, you know, hours went by and no incident. Um, so it was a good day. Uh, but then I heard uh, the calls for a, a combat medic, you know, medic, medic, medic. But I didn't hear the telltale signs typically that fought, that are prior to a medic being called is either an explosion or a gunshot. So I said, well, maybe it's not as bad as I think. So uh, I moved towards the screams and <clears throat> come across to – an Iraqi woman, she had come to vote with her husband, uh, and she was very, very, very pregnant. And she was in labor. So she was there. She was delivering that baby. So I grabbed our interpreter and and asked her, you know, how uh, how far along is she? She said nine months. And, um, you know, she pretty much told the interpreter, hey, this baby's coming. She knew. She had two other children as well. Um, so I said, okay. Well, they they train you a little bit on how to deliver babies when you go to medic school uh, in the Army, but not a whole lot. There's not a whole lot to it. The person delivering the baby is not doing much of the work. Mom does most of the work. So we brought her in the back of the ambulance, and, uh, you know, I've seen plenty of combat wounds, uh, amputations, uh, gunshot wounds, uh, just devastating explosions. I was not prepared. I thought I was prepared to see anything, but I was not prepared to see the business end of an Iraqi woman delivering a baby. That was shocking to me. Um, but yeah, the, the head was already crowning, and it was it was coming. So um, you know, I did what I seen on TV: tell her to push uh, between contractions, and within you know ten to fifteen minutes, I, I had a brand new Iraqi boy, <laughs> baby boy, uh, in my hands. Cleaned him off, cut his umbilical cord. Um, he wasn't uh, he wasn't uh, crying. Um, so I, you know, I was weird. I'm like, I know I'm supposed to slap him on the butt, but his mom and dad are here. I don't know how they're going to react. So dad reached over and smacked the kid and the kid started crying. So I said, things are, there's one thing that we have in common with the Iraqis. When babies are born, you smack them on the butt to get them to cry. <laughs> and The dad did that. So, yeah, and she, she delivered that baby right there. We, we delivered the baby, cleaned it up. Uh, and, uh, interpreter came over and said, Hey, um, Mom wants to get back in line to vote, uh, Dad too, um, and uh, they want to leave the kid with you guys, with you in the vehicle, um, with your team while they go vote. Would you be willing to do that? So we we said, of course. And so there we were, uh, a group of uh, soldiers uh, with a brand-new Iraqi baby, um, and uh, Mom and Dad went to vote. So we're carrying a brand-new child with M-16s, and grenades, uh, and we pretty much left that polling station unsecure because everybody wanted to be around that, be a part of that situation. So, um, yeah, we, we, the polling station lost its security for about an hour while Mom and Dad went to vote because everybody <laughs> focused on that new life, which was, was really cool. Um, and You know, I was a young soldier at the time. We were young. All the soldiers were young. We didn't think about the impact of that at the time. And you know, we got back to the base that night, and we're having dinner and, and talking, you know, and it was around Christmas time, it was in December. You know, and someone said, man, you know, today, just think about what happened, right? This is the first time that this country has had any form of democracy, at least in the last 75 to 100 years. We brought a new life into the world. The mother was so motivated to vote that she left a, her brand-new baby with foreigners with guns think about that for a second that's insane they trusted us that much and it was so important to her to have a voice in the, in the government of her country she left her brand new baby with strangers i don't think anybody in the united states would would do that right would you leave your, your brand new baby with a bunch of strangers with weapons i don't i don't think we would even I don't even know if an american mother would do that with american troops Right? I don't even know if that would happen, but they trusted us so much that it was a, a big impact on us and kind of motivated us to finish our tour in Iraq.
0: Do you feel like uh, the mission that uh, you had going into the Army as a young kid, mission accomplished that day?
2: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that gave, gave you a sense of this is what we're here for, right? This is what, not just me as a combat medic, I'm here to save lives, right? Um, but this is what we are in Iraq to do. Right. Is to show them we're there to care and to bring a little piece of America to them if that's what they want. Right. So, yeah, it was a it was a moment where you could say, yeah, I'm actually making an imp- impact on the world. So there is a kid in Iraq somewhere that I'm sure still tells the story to his friends about he was how he was delivered in the back of an Iraq of uh, American ambulance uh, and held for an hour by guys with guns. I'm sure that story being told. I'll never meet him. Probably never get to meet him um, ever again. But uh, yeah, there's. I'm sure he's still telling those stories.
1: Well, Matt, I've uh, I know you attained the rank of master sergeant, and I've seen a picture in your dress uniform, but I don't remember a baby deliverance, yeah. ribbon or anything <laughs> like that. It's,
2: uh, yeah, unfortunately, they don't give a they don't have a special ribbon for for delivering babies. It's such a rarity um, that uh, yeah. Uh, they didn't even bother to even give me an award. I guess they figured, hey, you've gotten three Purple Hearts. That's that's good enough. You, you <laughs> delivered this baby. I mean, I, I mean, uh, they didn't give me a, a ribbon for it. But you know what? I I earned a reputation um for that. There's still people that I meet today that I never served directly with, uh, and they get to the, you know I start to talk to them, and they're like, you know, I said, oh yeah, you're the, tell them about my story about getting wounded. And they're like, you're the guy that got shot in the head when I was stationed there. And you're the reason why we couldn't stick our heads out of the top of the vehicle anymore, and then I'm like, yeah, that's yeah, that's me, and they're like, well, you're the guy that delivered that baby, and this was you know twelve fifteen years ago, and people that I never served directly with, but they heard those stories those stories are still being told today so i i I've cemented my legacy at that point,
1: yeah so you uh you finished the tour, you came home, and uh but you still served a number. More years, quite a few more years. What was service like for you after that? So I went on a few
2: more uh, deployments, um, never back to Iraq. Uh, I went to Afghanistan um, and then uh, Kuwait a few times, and then we went into Iraq a little bit when they were shutting down. Operation New Dawn, when we were shutting down operations in Iraq. And and, and luckily, none of those deployments uh, were – I never had to treat another combat casualty again. I never was wounded again. So the, the, la- the latter part of my service, as you move up in rank, you get less and less on the front line. So as you make rank, you're, you're on, in the background leading larger groups of people, um, still making an impact obviously, but uh, being down on the front lines was, was pretty much over for me. So they, they sent me to more administrative roles uh, where I was running hospitals. Uh, stateside hospitals um so yeah i got to finish up my uh 23 years uh service uh and my ended my service on first of march uh 2019 when i officially retired from u.s army uniform service
1: one of the things that i think is really interesting and and you see this with uh, many first responders they serve and they come home and they continue to serve and that very much the case with you you're still serving today Tell us a little bit about what you're doing today.
2: So um, now uh, I'm working um, right back for the the, the, uh, Fort Sill um, Military Hospital on on, uh, Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Um, That was my last duty station in the Army. I was the first sergeant there and the senior clinical NCO, and I was the acting sergeant major before I retired. And now I'm I'm back there um, working as a government civilian now um, as a uh, medical benefits uh, counselor. Um, So I help soldiers and retirees and and veterans with their VA health care, navigating the VA process and navigating uh, military health care. So I still get to give back, and I don't just get to give back to soldiers now. I also am involved in giving back to the retiree community and the veteran community because the veterans have TRICARE benefits and VA benefits as well. So um, I get to help people from basic training, all the way until World War II, um, vets uh, with their medical benefits. So it's a, definitely a, still a fulfilling job, and I get to work with um, all ages nowadays. And, and the thing is, with with that, you know, dealing with the World War II vets, uh, we have some you, know, you would think someone my age and a World War II vet wouldn't have anything in common. Like civilians, that, that age gap, you don't really have a lot in common to talk about. But when you when you've served. Doesn't matter what your age is, right? I, I just that look—you can look across the room and see another vet. You can tell most of the time. We can tell each each other, uh, and you know, I have just as much to talk about with someone that old. Uh, you know, and just because of the way that we serve together and and our camaraderie—it's it's still there. No matter—it's it's, it's the age is timeless for the for military service, um, which is a really fulfilling job that I still get to. To, to work with these people on
1: a daily basis. One of the things that we learn, we get to meet a lot of veterans that come through here and, and we hear their stories, and one of the things we learn is when they come back from a deployment, when they come out of the Army, for many, the battle's still going on, and you're in the, a position where you see that a lot and can direct their help there's many people that say the VA doesn't do enough for those people. We don't think that the public quite understands the the, the big problem there. There's many other situations. Uh, we're doing a podcast on Gulf War Syndrome not too long for now. So many of our soldiers that come back are still fighting a battle of some kind. And what's exciting is you're right there and, and able to have firsthand knowledge of what they went through. And be able to you know prescribe help, so that has to be very rewarding for you.
2: Yeah, it, it definitely is, and uh, you know, uh, I think a lot of people, soldiers that come back, and I think their issue is, you know, when you come back from a combat zone like I did, and and your family or friends that have never served, um, ask you, you know, what it's, what is it, what, what is it like, right? It's something that you can't really put into words and I think people uh um struggle with that. They can't they people civilians don't understand. They don't understand it. So then trying to explain it to somebody it frustrates the service member even more. So I like to say, you know, um you know people ask, well how was it over there? So I can I say, well I can tell you how it went, but I can't tell you how it feels, right? I can tell you exactly what happened, but I can't tell you feelings of it emotionally. Um, and I tried to, I tried to do that, um, in some of my books that I wrote, you know, I wanted people to, when they read the books, I wanted them to feel like they were there with me, uh, given that IV or treating that amputation. You know, I wanted to explain how hot it was and how it felt. Um, so, you know, civilians can have a better understanding of, of how, uh, how it feels to be a soldier in a combat zone. And then also it helped me, you know, with some of my issues, right, being able to explain it and write it down. Um, a, lot of, a lot of soldiers do that. They, if they write it out, um, it, it helps them with their PTSD. But, yeah, coming back, uh, everybody's different, and they respond to, to different treatments. And a lot of times with the veterans, it's just, especially the older folks, Vietnam era uh, we're, we're losing unfortunately most of our world War two vets are Korean War vets uh, but just being able to talk to someone that understands it because it was looked down upon uh, in World War two uh, World War one I, I mean Vietnam pretty much until modern times recently PTSD was called something different every time battle fatigue uh, you know shell shock um, but it was looked down upon nobody talked about it because they were just Suck it up and drive on. Um, now it's not like that. It's open. They want you to come forward and talk about things like that. So, you know, now that it uh, it's open and those those older veterans feel more apt to come forward to the VA and to healthcare professionals and to counselors and talk about what they went through during those wars. So I think it's it's definitely um, helping out. And the VA has improved, in my opinion. I'm a VA um patient myself. Um and I can tell you in the last five to ten years their the way that they treat people and, and, and their facilities has increased so much. I've never had a bad experience with any of the VA healthcare that I've received. So it it's amazing to me how much they've improved
1: um just over the short amount of time. Matt, you mentioned that um you you did publish is it three, four, four? Three: three books. Three. Where, where can people get a hold of those books?:
2: So really, uh, I wrote those books pretty much for myself, um, so I never officially put them on sale anywhere online. Um, the best way to, to get a copy of a book is to contact me um, directly, or they sell them here at the museum. Um, you guys can get them here at the museum, but uh, contact me directly by email, and uh, I can get you uh, a copy of either one of the, any of the books uh, right now. They're all in back order. Um, but, yeah, I can definitely get copies if, if anybody's interested in getting a copy of the books.
1: So you through your Facebook page is, or yeah, your email Facebook
2: address? page or, or my email my email address, which is Sims at gmail.com. Shoot me an email, and uh, I get your book. It's not an issue.
0: Well, thank you for sharing your story with us today, Matt. Uh, it's been incredible to hear from you, a three-time Purple Heart recipient and a combat medic. So again, Matt, thank you so much for being in studio with us. We're going to go ahead and sign off from the Dog Tag Podcast at the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. The Dog Tag is brought to you by the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. The museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. Do you like our podcast? With your support, we'll continue to bring you great programming. If you'd like to donate, go to sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate. This podcast is sponsored by the Renee S. Real Estate Agency, located here in O'Fallon, Missouri. She is licensed in Missouri and Illinois and focuses on your personal and commercial insurance needs. Her office is located at 2764 Highway K, O'Fallon, Missouri 63368. She can be reached at 636-379-9556 or by email at reneesry at allstate.com, R-E-N-E-E-E-S-S-A-R-Y at allstate.com. If you are shopping for insurance and want an active agent that will educate and advise you on the coverage you need, reach out to her. Join us next time on the Dog Tag Podcast from the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. From the battlefields of the American Revolution to the deserts of Iraq and Afghanistan, women have been serving in the military in one form or another for more than 200 years. They have had to overcome decades of obstacles in order to be allowed to serve their country, and now deployed in ever-increasing numbers in combat roles and in leadership positions all around the world. The St. Charles County Veterans Museum showcases the artifacts, uniforms, photos, and especially the stories of the numerous brave women from World War II through present day. Museum curator Marcia Higgins will discuss highlights of the items on exhibit in the museum and tell stories about the women of valor.